Our scripture today is Acts 12, 1 through 19. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly! And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought that he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you were out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter kept knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand, he said, be silent. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him, And did not find him. He examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down to Judea, to Caesarea, and spent time there. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, TK. I could listen to you read scripture all day, every day. You could just be the voice on my app. That would be fantastic. All right, I'm looking forward to getting into this passage. I'm going to do two things before we get into the text itself. Um, we're going to pray, and we're going to talk about the uh, talk about 
finances for the church. Uh, so I'm excited to do that. But we have a family in our church, a couple in our church, Bill and Jean Scott, uh, who usually sit right about over here. Uh, and Bill is uh, having a heart surgery this week. He's, he's going to be going through that. And uh, if you know Bill and Jean, they're a dear part of our congregation. I believe you're watching Bill and Jean, so hi, we love you. Uh, we're going to take a moment and pray for the Scots. Um, Father, thank you for Bill and Jean. Thank you for the uh, legacy of faith that they bring to this congregation of having walked with you for many years. Uh, thank you for the way that they love this church, the way that they serve. We pray for Bill and Jean both, uh, that you would keep them both healthy uh, leading up to Bill's surgery. And Lord, we ask that you would sustain them and hold them. I pray for any, uh, that you would comfort their hearts in, in, in any way that they may be uh, uh, anxious or nervous. And uh, Father, we pray that you would give the, the, the doctors um, uh, skill and grace and wisdom as they, um, as they attend to Bill and that you would give him a smooth and swift recovery and bring them back uh, into our fellowship as soon as possible. And we're thankful for your mercy and grace. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. We love you, Bill and Jean. Okay, uh, I, as promised, I wanted to give us uh, an overview of finances on the church. We're kind of at the halfway point of the fiscal year. Um, there's no ask uh, in this presentation. I just want to, it's information. I want you to know kind of how things are going. So um, this slide right here that you have in front of you, uh, I know that when, you, when we get a bulletin, you see a number on the back of the bulletin that's like the giving what was budgeted for giving and what the actual was. And that number always represents all four locations combined. Uh, but when they do the budgeting process, and I think moving forward, we're going to start to be giving more like actual numbers for each location and congregation. Um, but when we look at the fiscal year for Cool Springs uh, or Music Row or Koinonia or Old Hickory Boulevard, we, we kind of look at what, we're, what historically has happened and, and uh, you know, kind of as we're setting the budget, sort of project what we think is going to happen uh, each month. Uh, we're, we're relatively conservative on the estimates that we make. Uh, but it helps us kind of set the budget to know, like, in terms of staffing and programming, what we can really afford. And, and so, um, so I wanted to give you this update kind of at the halfway point, um, although we do have January in here as well up through last Sunday, so we still have one more Sunday in January. But what you can see here is that as of January 24th, uh, we are, <coughs> excuse me, uh, we're roughly at 61% of our projected giving about 58% of the way through the year. So we're, we're really good. We're, we're right on pace for where we thought we were going to be. Um, you'll see there that like July through October, we were behind budget in all of those months, but we made it up in November and December. That tends to be something that churches do. Uh, December tends to be uh, the biggest giving month in the calendar year as people are thinking about year-end giving and that sort of thing. And for the last couple of years for Cool Springs, November has also been a big month, month which I assume is because some year-end giving is maybe happening in November as well. I don't know what anybody gives. Um, I don't know who gives. And so, and I don't know what amounts, and I, I, I will never know that information. That's information that um, none of the pastors ever see. 
uh, and don't want to see um, because I don't want to have the information of knowing the giving habits of the people in our church. Um, and yet at the same time, it's, it's good for us to see kind of what the giving trends are uh, because every year we're thinking about, okay, do we, do we have a flat budget for next year? Do we grow? Uh, one of the things that we've seen is when we moved in to, a, uh, to this facility, we've seen a little bit of an increase in overall giving, which has been uh, nice. Uh, for the rest of the year, uh, most of the months, except for January and May, the, the monthly goal is about $44,000 a month, uh, with May and January being $55,000. So that's just kind of a, a giving. We have another slide uh, just kind of shows you if you like to see it this way. It's the same information, um, basically. But that red is the actual giving. Uh, the green line is the prior year. So you can kind of see that we're, we're, we're experiencing a little bit of, a, of an increase year over year. Uh, the great news about all of this is this doesn't take into account what was also given to the build-out of the facility. And so uh, we received $209,354.27 for contributions to the build-out fund here. In addition to regular tithes and offerings, the total build-out costs we projected, and we're kind of right there, um, (coughs) excuse me, was uh, $350,000. So in our fiscal year budget... We had a line for build-out of the facility that was around $215,000. And then we had about $210,000 come in in addition to that. And so what that does together is it means that the budgeted funds for the build-out plus the designated giving to the build-out put us really well within the range of covering our own build-out expenses. So uh, well done, Cool Springs. That's amazing to be uh, here at this place. So we we have... (coughs) Sorry. We have one more Sunday for January. We're at about close to 40,000. Um, so it's, it's looking good and, and things kind of, kind of go out. But we're going to be giving you more of the kind of on the ground information for Cool Springs. So I wanted to give you all of that to know so that you all would know where we are at about the halfway point in the year. Um, I would also say that our uh, spending, our expenses is about on pace for what we projected. So that's um, a lot of the spending for the Cool Springs budget this year was weighted toward the first half of the year um, because of the build-out. And so we've spent, we've spent more than half of our, of our uh, projected expenses, but we're on pace for what we thought we would do. So we're going to end probably right at or maybe a little bit under uh, our operating expenses, um, and giving looks to be on track. So wanted to give you that update. Yay. Okay. And in the summer, we will do a more proper congregational meeting where we'll unpack the the next fiscal year's budget and look back at this one, and there'll be Q&A and things like that. If you have any questions, uh, come see me after the service, and I'd be happy to answer any questions you may have about that. All right, so I love this passage in in Acts. I actually love the chapter, chapter 12, because there's a lot that happens. Lee Eric Fesco is going to be coming and preaching uh, here next Sunday. I love to be able to have him in the rotation, and so he'll be talking about the rest of this chapter and what happens. Um, But today's text is loaded with some pretty weighty stuff. And one of the things that jumps jumps out at me about this passage is that the first three verses 
tell us about the martyrdom of James, the son of Zebedee. What's significant about that is this is the James of Peter, James, and John. This is the James of the inner circle of Jesus' friends during his earthly ministry. That there were several times when, <coughs> when Jesus was with just these three guys, James and John, who were brothers, and Peter. And in the book of Acts, James is martyred, and we get three verses about it, and that's it. I mean, it's just like kind of summarily addressed. And I think part of the reason that happens is because the story around his execution was like that. It was, it was a, really a matter of no consequence whatsoever to Herod. We can't always see the obvious purpose to the timing or the cause of things like death or suffering. And we're certainly hard-pressed to come up with a purpose behind the death of James. What it looks like and what the passage tells us is Herod killed him because he was testing the response of the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem to see it, would this garner favor with them if he persecuted Christians. And so he has James arrested, never really gives it a second thought, has him beheaded, likes the result, and moves on to the next disciple that he could apprehend, which is Simon Peter. Now, that story is tragic, right? It's a, it's a tragic, abrupt end to the life of one of Jesus' closest friends during his earthly ministry. The experience Peter had has to be balanced with James, because one of them lives and one of them dies. And the will of God alone is the reason for this, and there's mystery there. But one of the things that we see in the text is the bulk of this passage is about what happened to Peter, is Luke frames it in the beginning and at the end of the story by saying people were fervently praying. Prayer is what bookends the story of what happened with Peter. Before we get into it, I want to I just note that what's happening here is Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, is relaying this story as Peter told it to him. So we're getting some firsthand account and eyewitness from Peter. How do I know that? Well, no one else would know that the angel had to poke him in the side to wake him up, right? Nobody else would know that he remained groggy until he was standing alone in the empty streets of Jerusalem thinking that it was all a dream. The descriptions that are in here of the guards, the two chains, the turning of the door on its hinges unassisted, and the angel having to help the sleepy disciple get dressed. Where the angel, you saw it, right? The angel says, get dressed, put on your sandals, Wrap your cloak around you. Some of you had those same conversations this morning, right? And then you have the detail that Rhoda, in her joy, left Peter standing outside in the dark 
All these things tell us that this is a first-person account, and I mention that because there are some places, I'm, I'm fascinated by places in Scripture that have humor, because there's not, there, Scripture's not a jokey book, right? But there's humor in the pages of Scripture, and here, there's some humor in this. In fact, you all laughed at a certain point when TK was reading this passage with this picture of Peter kind of standing outside the door as it gets shut in his face, and Rhoda goes back to say, um, Peter's at the door, and they're like, no, he's not, right? I mean, that's, that's funny. What I love about this is that the humor that we get out of this passage comes from Peter. So in God's providence, he's giving us a little window into the sense of humor that Peter had, and I, for one, love that. I love that we get a sense of the personality of Peter and what it must have been like for him to tell this story. So what does Peter describe? He says that he's arrested during Passover. Now, we saw this with the arrest of Jesus, is that it would cast a shadow over the holy feast to have a public trial and execution during the Passover, And so when Peter is imprisoned, he's put in jail until the Passover is done. So they put him in jail to basically wait for the holiday to be finished and then to deal with him. And we we see that he had four squads of soldiers guarding him. So a squad would have been four men. So there were 16 soldiers who were assigned to guarding Peter. That should make us ask the question, why so many? Why were so many people put on this detail? Luke doesn't say, but we can speculate from Scripture, from what happened with Jesus, from what's happening with the early church, that it was because in the eyes of leadership in Jerusalem, Peter is beginning more and more to look like a revolutionary. So you can't overestimate the church's impact on Jerusalem. Christianity was unraveling the social fabric of the first century Jewish way of life. And every time somebody tried to snuff it out with the crucifixion of Jesus, with the Apostle Paul going on this rampage to try to kill all Christians, what ends up happening every time is it only grows stronger. And Peter is kind of at the helm of a lot of this. He's exhibit A. With each arrest and with each beating, his speeches to the public become more authoritative. And the circle of his friends grows larger and larger. And so Peter is, in the eyes of people watching him, he is becoming a prototypical revolutionary. Peter, he was a paradox for these people. And the reason he was because he was, he was feared by his captors who were about to put him to death. Like they had somebody in their midst that they were going to kill him, but they were also afraid of him. And he's also a paradox because as we read in this passage, and again, this is Peter talking, right? Is on the night before his certain death, he slept, and the text tells us, soundly. He slept just fine. Now, we're not just getting some of Peter's sense of humor. We're also getting some of his sleeping habits, which is cool. When the angel of the Lord comes to free him, 
He had to poke Peter in the side to wake him up. It's like a mom, right? Getting a sleeping kid out of a car seat. That's what's happening here with Peter. And the chains to which Peter was bound to the two guards, they just they fell off of him. And then the angel led Peter through a series of gates to the empty street and to freedom. And that last gate swung open on its own, which I've seen in movies, right? You've seen doors open on their own in movies. That had to have been amazing. But the angel apparently just had this one mission, and the mission was to free Peter. Since as soon as Peter is outside the prison and down the street, the angel leaves, right? And so he's just kind of standing there, alone, in the dark, groggy, having slept well, right? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, tells us it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And we see this in the aftermath with Herod and with the guards. After searching for Peter, to no avail, Herod puts the men who guarded him to death. There are funny parts of this story. This is not one of them, right? This, this, is, this is a poignant tragedy in this story. That because James' death curried favor with the religious leaders in Jerusalem, Herod marked Peter for death as well. And because an angel rescued him, four, or maybe even all 16, of Peter's guards were killed. And Peter was now on the run. So this is a messy story, right? It's a messy story. Real people lost their lives here. It's far beyond a good guys and bad guys kind of tale. But it's God's story, and God is building his church, and one of the means that he's using to build his church here is prayer. And we see it. Luke bookends the story of Peter's release by telling us that the church earnestly prayed for him. We see it in verse 5. We also see it in verse 12. Prayer is what is surrounding his release. And these people devoted themselves They were devoted to prayer. Remember, Peter was released in the middle of the night. So in the wee small hours of the morning, he's released. And after making his way through the streets of this sleeping city, he arrives at Mary's house, and the lights are on. And those inside were praying. It must have been three or four in the morning. These are devoted people who are committed and are concerned and afraid for Peter. See how they're praying. They're up all night. They're united in heart and mind. They're praying earnestly to God, specifically for Peter. I mean, these are all qualities that we should imitate when we pray, right? That there's an earnestness about it, that we're united in heart and mind with other believers, that we're praying specifically to God for things that are on our hearts. But before we decide that if we pray like this, it means we're going to get what we want, right? That if we would just pray like these people were, we'd get what we're asking for. It's worth taking a look at maybe what they were really asking for. 
Because when Peter was released, what he said when he was finally allowed in was, the Lord has rescued me from all that the Jewish people were expecting. What does that mean? Well, it seems that his rescue, rescue was not necessarily what the people were praying about or what they expected. What did they expect? Well, I think what they expected was for what happened to James to happen to Peter. And if that's the case, what are they asking? I mean, we see it, right? When Peter shows up at the door, they can't believe he's alive. It's implausible to think that he's alive. I think this is because they they weren't necessarily praying for his release, but they were praying that he would die well. And that... What makes me think this is because it appears inconceivable to them that Peter would survive. Like when, when, when Rhoda tells them he's at the door, their response is, you're out of your ever-loving mind, right? I mean, that's the part where we all kind of chuckled at this. But she insists that he's out there alone with the door closed on the other side of it. And they assume he's already been executed, And so they say it's his ghost, right? Now, what this is telling us is the people who were fervently praying for Peter, the last thing in the world they were expecting was for him to show up alive again. But I don't think we should pick on them for having weak faith. Because if we were in the same shoes, I think we we would pray similarly. Right? Because these were, after all, informed prayers. When Jesus was arrested by the Romans to please the religious leaders, he was crucified. When James was arrested by the Romans to please the religious leaders, he was beheaded. Why would it be any different for Peter? Daybreak would have marked the end of the Passover, and once the feast was over, Peter's trial would commence and he would die. And those at Mary's house, I think, were certain of this. And I imagine their prayers were like ours would be for a loved one on death row. Where we would say, Lord, grant, let the governor grant a stay of execution. But if that's not your will, let our brother die well, peacefully and full of faith. And we'd pray this suspecting that the governor's call would probably never come. But still they prayed. For what? We, we can't ultimately know. I'm, I am engaging in some speculation here based on the way that the story is unfolding. Nobody expected him to be alive. But what we do know, and this is where we get into some application for prayer, is God responded to an imperfect prayer as he always does. He responded perfectly. He responded perfectly to this. And so you may wonder, well, if their prayers were weak or nearsighted, as they maybe appear to be, isn't it more likely that God released Peter in spite of their prayers rather than in response to them? If you're a praying person, the answer to this is actually pretty crucial. Were they praying imperfect prayers and the Lord was saying, I'm not going to do what you're asking. I'm going to do this other thing. 
Or is the Lord responding to an imperfect prayer perfectly? It's crucial for us because it raises these questions. Do our prayers need to be accurate in order to be answered? Do we have to have the right theological understanding of how prayer works for God to honor a prayer we offer up? Do we need to use in our prayers all these $50 theologically correct words, you know, in order for God to say, that guy seems to know what he's talking about, or that woman seems to really have a grip on prayer what prayer is all about. I'm going to give special attention to her words. Do our prayers need to be perfect for God to respond perfectly to them? And if they aren't, should we expect a lesser answer from God? What well, was an imperfect prayer? I'm going to, I'm going to, my answer is going to be about 70% of what you want. I believe that Luke bookends the account of Peter's release by mentioning that his brothers and sisters were praying because he wants us to see prayer as the context for Peter's release. They prayed, and Peter was set free. And upon his release, he went to where they were gathered, and he found them praying for him. That had to have been a really encouraging moment for him. Why did he go there? Why did he go to that house? Ultimately, because God led him there. But God showed Peter to this worried band of brothers and sisters. He, he showed Peter to them. These people who had been up all night keeping vigil for him. God answered them. He answered them. Now, there's a hard question in this passage, and maybe it's already come to your mind in the context of how we've been talking about prayer being a bookend for what happened with Peter. And that question is, why did Peter live and James die? is the presumption that, well, it's because people were praying for Peter, but nobody was praying for James. Listen, people had to have been praying for James. There's no way people weren't praying for James. Just as fervently, of course they were. And they were probably asking that God would free him, and if not, that he would grant James the courage and the faith to die well. The historian Eusebius talks about the death of James, and if what he says is accurate, James did die well. He says that he died forgiving his captors, pronouncing benedictions over them just before they lopped off his head. So why did James die and Peter live? I'm going to give you an answer that I believe is theologically watertight and deeply mysterious. Ready? Why did James die and Peter live? Because it was James' time to die and Peter's time had not yet come. I don't know how else to say it, because any other scenario means that the time of somebody's death is outside of the providential will of God, 
and there is nothing outside of the providential will of God. When the time comes for somebody to die, there is something in the providence and wisdom of God that recognizes that it is the time. The struggle that we will always have, this side of glory, is that we are not privy to that wisdom. We are not privy to that information. And so we have our questions, and we have our anger, and we have our frustration. Peter's death would come 20 years later, and he would be martyred as well, according to to tradition, crucified upside down. But for now, Peter lives. There's more for him to do. Prayer is kind of one of those foolish things that God's people do in the eyes of the world. The Lord says that we do things, that there are, there are things that are, that are uh, foolish things we do that shame the wise, right? God's people come together trusting, as Jesus taught us to pray, that his will is what's best. And so we ask that that will would be done. And we hope for certain things. Of course we hope for certain things. And we pray specifically and ask for certain things. But ultimately, our petitions come down to the words of Jesus, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it must have looked ridiculous to the watching world that the beleaguered band of people at Mary's were asking God to strengthen a man who was at the mercy of the Roman Empire. But prayer that is used of God is more powerful than the Roman Empire. Prayer that is used of God is more powerful than any army. Who can bar any door that God means to open? What is our strength in prayer? Is it fervency? Is it duration? Is it eloquence? Is it like we get time and a half if it's after midnight? You know, Uh, listen, God can move when and where he pleases. And the good news is he always, always does. He always moves when and where he pleases. We don't have the mind of God and we don't have insight into why but we can take comfort in knowing that he always does what he wants. And what he wants is perfect. So prayer then is the work of submitting to that will, right? It's the work of submitting to the will of God and of asking him to so work in our hearts that his will is what we really desire. That I really want God, even as I offer this prayer and I ask you for specific things, What I really want you to do is I want you to do what is in your will, even if that means overriding my will, and that you would grant me the wisdom to accept that from you. When we pray, we're asking God to hear our hearts, not just our words. 
and he's unchanging, and he's all-powerful, and he's all-knowing, and we are not. He's the keeper of his eternal will, and we are not. But God calls us, even teaches us to pray, even when every prayer that we pray this side of heaven is in some way imperfect. Every single one. Every prayer I've ever uttered is nearsighted. Yours too. And yet no matter how great and grand our prayers rise to be, they still come nowhere close to touching the glory God is able to accomplish through them. And this is the beauty of prayer and of this text. Even though we don't know what they prayed, the answer God gave them was more than they bargained for. It was more than they expected. The power of prayer is not in the words being uttered. The power of prayer is not in the comprehension the praying person has over the situation they're praying about. The power of prayer lies in the one being prayed to. And every prayer that we pray is in some way imperfect, but every answer that he gives is eternally perfect. And so my prayer for us is may the one to whom we pray astonish us with his strength and his power to deliver us from evil while shaping our hearts in such a way that what we want more than anything is for his to be the kingdom and the power and the glory. Amen. Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for stories like this in scripture that raise questions and don't necessarily give us clear answers. And yet they call us, invite us to trust you in all things, even beyond the scope of our comprehension. Lord, sometimes what that means for us, and we confess this and we acknowledge it, is it means we will go through periods of time where (coughs) in our inability to comprehend your will, we're just angry with you. We're angry with you for what seems to us an injustice or a failure on your part to give us what we feel we need the most. And Lord, we also know that part of living in a broken, fallen world is tragedy befalls us all. That everybody in this room has suffered. Everybody in this room has lost. All of us will continue to suffer and all of us will continue to lose in this life. It's a part of living in a broken, fallen world. And yet the hope that you call us to is not empty. And the hope that you call us to is not something where we're just pretending that things are better than they actually are. The hope is that even in this world that is broken, that you prevail over the grave. And that when our hope and our trust is in you, whatever happens in this life, this life is a vapor. And that you are making all things new. And so help us to trust that. Lord, even as we do that, I pray that you would also embolden us and strengthen us. Give us the confidence to pray boldly imperfect prayers. To raise our cries to you unedited. Knowing that you hear them and that you hear our hearts. You understand the anger we feel. You understand the grief that is ours. You understand the sorrow You understand the hope. You understand our nearsightedness. Lord, would you embolden us to pray our imperfect prayers and to trust that you are working perfectly through them. And we pray this in your matchless name.
Amen.